Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. And the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year, for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses and the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire, and of jacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed, by the fire and by the smoke, and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, And with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication nor of their thefts. The human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. Calvin's Institutes, Book One. Uh, I've sometimes heard this in more contemporary English, although the language of a forge is certainly very appropriate, where metal is uh, worked and made into an image. Our minds, our hearts are uh, talked about as being a forge that's always producing idols. I've heard it in contemporary English that the mind, the human heart, is a factory for idols. We produce them, pump them out just one right after another. I have a focus problem. Maybe you have a similar sort of problem. After my first conversion, when I came into the midst of the evangelicals, I heard many warnings from the pulpit concerning the idols of the heart. The, uh, it was said that the heart, the inner man, has a, has a throne, has a high throne that has been purposefully designed by the Creator for himself alone. 
if we uh, make bold in our heart to put anything else in that throne, we have an idol of the heart. We are loving that thing. Even if it's just for the moment or just for a time, we're loving it more than God. And an idol has, uh, has taken the throne and usurped God's place. Very helpful. More helpful than I understood at the time. And then I moved into the midst of the Reformed, and uh, I heard warnings concerning idolatry of a different kind. Warnings concerning idolatry in worship. If I might uh, borrow the words of our text, the works of our own hands. The setting aside of the ordinances, ordinances of God in favor of our own inventions. And uh, it wasn't too long after that that I began to see more of the rationale or the reason. When we alter the worship of God, it's not too long before um, the face of God himself begins to uh, be distorted in the midst of our worship. In other words... Second commandment problems tend very much to lead to first commandment problems. You change God's worship, which is designed to retain that true image of God in our midst, that true view of God, the true doctrine of God in our midst. When you begin to change that, it's not too long before the doctrine of God itself begins to change and we begin to lose the true God. Also, a very helpful lesson that I never even heard touched in the midst of evangelicalism. But now I find that I need constant reminders to come back to my first lessons concerning the idols that intrude in the heart. And thus my focus problem. Why can't I seem to hold all of these things together in my mind at the same time? Years and years ago, I can't necessarily recommend it highly, but I, I read... Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. Uh, if you've never studied Ben Franklin, he's probably not who you think he is, but not a very good fella. Very bright, uh, but not a great role model as far as role models go. Interesting part of his autobiography, uh, he wanted to attain moral perfection. So he's not a believer, but he wanted to be morally perfect. So he made a list of the virtues that he thought were necessary for moral perfection. And when he looked at his list, he said, well, this is too much to try to do altogether. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take them one at a time. And once I feel like I've got the one virtue down, then I'll add the next one. And so he'd work on one particular virtue for a while. And when he felt he really had it down, he moved on to the second. And he added the second, and then he moved on to the third, only to find that the first slipped. Well, I'm going to have to start over, he thought to himself. So he went back to the first, got that one going again, moved on to the second, got that going again, moved on to the third, and lost the first again. He decided to give up. As uh, it's sort of the end of all works righteousness, uh, ultimately a very frustrating thing. I think of this because I have the same trouble focusing why can't I think of all of these lessons together? Why can't I hold them together? Uh, but this is very important. Those first lessons concerning heart idolatry were very important because it's a very bad thing. 
even for a few moments, to love something more than God or to trust in something other than God. And yet there's nothing more natural to our nature than to do both of these things. And you start to see what Calvin says, we're, we're constantly enthroning things in our hearts that are not the true God, but are mere creatures and not worthy of um, our adoration, our worship, not worthy of our love, not worthy of our trust. Our text calls us to repentance for loving and trusting the creature when we should only be loving God in this way and trusting God alone. Set your text in front of you again. You remember the Lord's controversy with his visible church. Started with idolatry, they began to make alterations to the Lord's worship. Of course they did. They were tares. They were worldly-minded men. And then we've, we have tracked all along the way the rise of anti-Christianism in their midst. All of the various things that were displacing Christ himself as mediator. And remember, it is a fundamental doctrine of Christianity that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Well, Christ was being displaced by the sacrament. The sacrament communicates grace. The priest who administrates the sacrament, the church that authorizes him to do that. And if you'll remember, before we left the fourth century, even uh, martyred saints had now become substitute mediators. You can see that anti-Christianism, the anti-Christian spirit, is multiplying rapidly all sorts of substitute mediators. The Lord's response is a stretched out arm. He wears the Western Roman Empire out with the barbarian invasions. The West won't repent and the East doesn't learn anything. Then he wears out uh, the Eastern Empire with the Islamic threat. The East won't repent and the West doesn't learn anything by watching. We are given Christendom's response in verse 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not. Here we have an image of the part that wasn't destroyed, the Western Roman Empire, uh, looking over at the east and not learning anything from what's happening. They haven't learned from their own judgments. They're not learning by uh, watching judgments in uh, others. And interestingly enough, this has made all the worse uh, because the Turks were threatening them as well. You remember at the time of the of the Reformation, part of what uh, made Charles V so upset about the Reformation was that um, uh, Christendom was being broken up by Luther's Reformation, and and Charles V really needed its united strength to face whom the Turks who were invading Europe. And so he, you know, his appeal to Luther is a very practical one. At the very time that we need unity most, you are breaking up the unity of doctrine. You are breaking up, um, but Luther was Luther. He said, the truth will triumph over you and the Turks. We need no political combination to win this fight. We need the truth. And when we have the truth, 
and faith. We have the Lord on our side. So he didn't feel like he needed any political com- combination. I bring this up, though, is the, the Turks were a threat to Western Europe as well. Uh, and yet they're not learning the lesson. Turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 3. Look at the dynamic. Think of Israel, the northern kingdom, as being the eastern empire and Judah being the western empire that should have learned something from what they were watching. And you'll understand the dynamic and the provocation that this brought to the Most High God. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king. So just remember... The northern kingdom by this time has already been destroyed and its inhabitants deported by the Assyrians. So the destruction of the northern kingdom for its idolatry has already happened and Judah was watching the whole time. And the Lord thinks they should have learned some lessons from this. So the days of Josiah, the setting, very important. Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me. But she returned not, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorcement. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. And yet for all this her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly saith the Lord. And the Lord said unto me, The backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. The fact that this is played out in front of Judah actually increases Judah's guilt beyond that of the northern kingdom. And so we have a similar dynamic. The West has had an opportunity to watch this drama play out in the East. They have felt the menace of the same threat, and yet they don't learn anything from it, and their guilt is all the greater. If you look at the second half of verse 20, they repented not of the works of their hands. The works of their hands is a very common way of referring to idols in the scriptures. And it's a way of highlighting something very important, that men are not worshiping their creator, they are worshiping a creature, the work of their own hands. So rather than uh, worshiping their creator whose workmanship they are, they are worshiping their own workmanship, which as the prophets will frequently observe is absurd. You made it, it did not make you. So why would you fall down in front of it and worship it as if it had made you? So referring to idols in this way is a way of highlighting the folly of it. 
you fall down before the works of your own hands rather than before the God whose workmanship uh, you are. This expression is further described. Um, They're repenting not of their works of the hands as that they should not uh, worship devils, idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and so on. So first of all, and we will look at this more next week if the Lord wills, but it's very interesting that they should not worship devils. Daimonia in Greek, where we get our English word demons, obviously. But this is very interesting language because it has two possible meanings, which are very interesting for the history of the time. It could be devils, demons, fallen angels. It can mean that. It can refer to that. But interestingly enough, it can also refer to deified mortals. Uh, The ancient pagans frequently, when their kings, for example, would die or other important persons, would think of those as uh, being now deified mediators between them and the higher gods or sometimes the high god. And that's exactly what the Romanists are doing at this at this point in time with their uh, departed saints and martyrs, these important persons that become deified in the mind and then are treated as uh, lower deities. You address yourself to the lower deities and then they help you with the higher ones. But the idea was very much the Roman Catholic idea. And you can see how in some ways Roman Catholicism is just Christianized paganism. But the idea was this, and if you can remember our sermons on the late 4th century and what uh, the church was doing with its departed saints, so you would go and address uh, the departed saint and ask him for benefits, and when those benefits came to you, you would go back and worship him as your beneficiary. And the high gods would actually kind of recede into the background because it's these lower deities with whom you had to do Principally, now this sort of demonolatry has not changed in the Roman church from the late 4th century to the present day. They repented not of it. But we'll talk about that some more in its relationship to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's It's a very interesting study all its own. But we have to save some of the discussion concerning the fulfillment of this for, uh, for next week. But the text goes on. And idols of gold and silver and brass and wood and of stone. Well, you can see this fulfilled if you go into any Roman Catholic church uh, to the present day. Go into their cemeteries. You'll see all of these things. Because even to the present day, they've, uh, they've not repented. Uh, people tend to make idols of these sorts of things because they're, they're wanting to set an honor upon them. So even if they were made out of stone or wood, it's not unusual for them to be dressed up in some way or to be, to be overlaid in precious metals. But let the metals be ever so precious, as precious as can be imagined. They're still creatures. And so this is still absurd. Man made in the image of God falling down in front of insensible things. This language is borrowed, uh, it appears, the closest uh, analogy that you get to it is from the book of Daniel, and Daniel chapter 5. 
And just to set the stage, you remember Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar makes the unhappy mistake. He confuses himself for God for a while. Look at this grand kingdom that I've made and his heart is lifted up in front of him. He very quickly learns that he is no God at all, that he is nothing compared to the true God. God takes his reason, his sense away from him, and before he knows it, he's grazing out in a field like a cow. So here's the great king of all the earth, uh, reduced to the bestial. When his reason is restored to him, he lays up a testimony concerning uh, the glory and dominion of the true God. And that this great and sovereign God uh, gives dominion, authority, and power to whomever he will on earth, and he rules over all. He is always upon the throne. He never vacates it. He always rules Uh, And so on. This testimony is laid up, but his successors don't learn the lesson. In chapter 5, we find Belshazzar, uh, even as Babylon is being besieged, doing what? He pulls out uh, the Jerusalem temple artifacts, the things that they used. And they're going to drink and get drunk out of these things while they praise their own gods. Let me just read this to you. I think you'll see the similarity in language. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the kings and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver and of brass and of iron, of wood and of stone. It's a similar sort of thing. Um, In spite of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony that has revealed the folly of this kind of idolatry, they are impenitent with respect to their idolatry. So it's very interesting that the the spiritual dynamic is analogous. And so John evokes this language for us, the gods of gold, silver, brass, iron, wood, and stone, and so on. These idols are further described as not being able to see, hear, or walk. So here, living creatures that are created in the image of God are going to serve dead things that can't appreciate their worship, dead things that cannot commune with them. And as it's so frequently said in the Old Testament, you're going to appeal to these dead things that can't do anything to help you deliver you, save you, or give you any good thing. So you're going to ignore the creator, the sovereign God of all, and you're going to worship what what they sometimes refer to in the Old Testament as dunghill deities. They can't do anything uh, to help you. There are similar descriptions to this uh, throughout the Old Testament, but if you'll turn back with me to Psalm 115... So think of man, man is needy, and so he starts to look for help. 
notice the wisdom of looking for help in the sovereign God and then the uh, comparative folly of seeking it in idols. Verse 3, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. So he is sovereign. He can do all things. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is every one that trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So you trust in these lifeless things. You're going to find yourself like unto them. Because they cannot help. Rather than finding deliverance, you will find your own destruction. But then the psalmist uh, calls upon Israel to consider the Lord, the living and true God, sovereign and powerful, uh, mighty to save. He is our help and our shield. You find almost identical wording in, in Psalm 135 as well. So we've looked at the expression and we'll look at, at the expressions and we'll look at the historical fulfillment of these things next week. Um, But I thought we might take away just one use, and it's enough. Let us put away all the idols in which we are trusting. All of the expressions in this text are meant to highlight to us the folly of idolatry. What a ridiculous thing to love these lifeless things. What a ridiculous thing to trust in them. They can't do anything to help us, to save us. They're not the creator. Uh, and it becomes a double folly when the idolatry is pointed out and we won't repent of it, when the absurdity is made manifest and yet we'll cleave to our idol. And I've made a distinction here between uh, idols of love and then idols of trust. With respect to the first, it's when we set our affection upon something an affection greater than the affection that we have for the Most High God. You remember the teaching of the Lord Jesus. We're, we're to love one another, right? But the Lord Jesus teaches it like this, hyperbolically. He said, um, in comparison to me, you ought to hate your father, your mother, your sister, and your brother. There ought to be such a disparity in your affection that your very love for other men ought to be hatred in comparison of your love and esteem for God. Uh, So you see the comparison there. It's a very striking way of of teaching. But from time to time, other things will get upon the throne of our heart. And this is a shameful kind of uh, idolatry. Frequently when this happens, we don't even recognize when it happens. Because... Our minds are dull, uh, dark, and our hearts are dull. And it happens, and we're not recognizing that it happens. Our mouths are still full of all sorts of religious talk and everything else. (laughs) But something else is on the throne. And as the Puritans were so so fond of giving um, notes of trial to help us to discover these things, I do think that there are some 
if you reflect upon these things, you can probably think of some others, but some things that occurred to me. How do we discover when we've set uh, our love upon a creature in a way that's inappropriate, in a way that's become idolatrous? One of, what, one of the ways this is discovered is after the fact, when it's taken away. When we have a creature taken away from us and we become sullen, peevish, bitter, um, it's become an idol to us. We've set our hearts upon it in uh, an inappropriate way. And especially uh, if you are willing to reflect negatively upon God, if you find anger in your heart because he's taken it away, that thing, whatever it is, has become an idol for you. Now you might say, well, what good does it do to discover to discover it after the fact? And repentance is still good after the fact. And, uh, you know, the Lord might just be taking it away for a season. It might come back. And if it comes back, your affections need to be properly regulated towards it. You need to make sure that it doesn't end up climbing into that seat that is reserved for uh, God alone. Something that might be more helpful as a note of trial beforehand, you know that you have an idol in your heart, an idol of affection, an idol of love, if you're willing to sin in order to have the thing, in order to get it or to keep it. If you're willing to sin in order to get it or keep it, it's very clear that at that moment you'd rather have that thing, whatever it is, than unhindered fellowship with your God. You've got an idol. And you've got an idol problem. This pertains to all of us. Uh, children, you've probably had this experience. Mommy made the chocolate cake. And after having made the chocolate cake and uh, put icing on it and everything, she puts it underneath the glass shield. And she tells you, for the company, do not touch it. We will have it tonight when the company gets here. When you steal it, when your little fingers go to swipe away the icing and so on, and don't think that your parents don't figure these things out. You know, your, your parents will see the finger streaks in the icing. You should never imagine that you get away with, the, with these sorts of things. But when you are willing to steal, the cake has become an idol in your heart. You're willing to offend the Most High God. You're willing, to, um, you're willing to push fellowship with him to the side so that you can have icing. And that ought not to be. That's become an idol. What ridiculous creatures we are when the icing has captivated our hearts. But you know I'm teaching a good lesson, don't you? You know how tempting those, those sorts of things become. You walk with God. And you know that you're walking with God when you obey. I prefer walking with God to icing. I prefer walking with God to cake and to cookies. Um, I prefer walking to, with God than having the toy and so on. But that's where we begin to learn these, these lessons. In recent days, our congregation has, has learned this, and this is a good one for young people. You do know that a suitor, a potential spouse, can become an idol. And it's actually a very common sin. 
when you are willing to sin in order to have a particular spouse who is unsuitable for various reasons, that's why it entails sin. But when you are willing to sin in order to have that person, that person has become an idol for you and a dangerous one. Can become an idol for many years or a whole uh, lifetime. It will frequently uh, manifest itself at the end. Uh, you know, I can't go on living without my spouse. If the spouse should be removed in death, or uh, I love this spouse so well that I'll never, uh, you know, I can never even think of marrying again, and so on. This, this is all the language of idolatry with respect to the spouse. And we need to be careful uh, concerning these things. Um, adults, all I need to say to you is, uh, you know, think about the things that you might be tempted to do in order to get the money. Compromises that we make. If we're willing to sin in order to get it, the bills, the dollar bills have become an idol in our life. So we need to be very careful about these things. And if we're willing to sin to get anything, to have it, to keep it, to maintain it, whatever it might be, that has become an idol in our life. And you, if the Lord is even now disclosing to you an idol, um, an idol that you've erected in your in your heart, you ought to be uh, deadly earnest in getting that thing down, removing the idols and put the, putting them away. We'll talk about that uh, some more in just a moment. We can also have uh, idols of trust. And they're also very common. David said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. It's very easy for us, such as we are, to trust in means rather than trusting in God. We trust in the bank account for our provision rather than God. We if we get involved in a war, we trust in the tanks and the missiles rather than rather than trusting in God. In some ways, um, this is so natural and so easy for us. It's a constant battle, and we need to constantly be aware of these things. And again, the discovery is difficult. You just think about the bank account. When the bank account is fat, it's easy for us to say, well, we're trusting the Lord for our provision. Well, we'll see. When things get thin... You upset? You troubled in your heart? Well, the Lord is the same. Why are you troubled now? What were you really trusting? What were you really trusting? So, uh, just some illustrations of this. And one of the best ways to discover discover an idol of trust is when it's taken away or when it's threatened. Do we become fearful and disquieted? Because if we're honest, the Lord's the same. If I was trusting in the Lord, I wouldn't be any different. I'd still be quiet. I'd still be at rest. I'd still be at peace. But the means are being taken away, and I'm upset, which is a sign that I was really trusting in the means. So again, think about your your savings or your bank account. It's a strange thing that the scriptures talk about. Both James and Peter tell us to value the trials of faith because they teach us things. They teach us about ourselves and they teach us about God. And so they become precious things to us if we value them rightly. One of the uh, 
we just had it in our studies as a family in the Gospel of Matthew. And um, uh, rich young ruler goes away dejected. He didn't get the lesson. Lord Jesus says, you know, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. The disciples are shocked because they think of the rich people as being blessed by God. So if the people who are being blessed by God and taken care of by God are hardly saved, what's to become of the rest of us? But the Lord Jesus said it's not like that. Everybody wishes that they were rich, but with riches come extraordinary temptations and a difficulty, a peculiar difficulty in evaluating ourselves spiritually. So you have to be careful what you wish for. Uh, you might just get it. You see, the problem for the rich man who uh, who thinks that he's trusting in God, it, it's really hard to determine what he's really trusting in, as long as the bank account is fat. Uh, but for the common person who lives month to month and paycheck to paycheck, when things get thin and things get tight, it's a spiritual trial. And he learns about the quality of his faith. He learns what he's really trusting in. And he learns what it means to rest in God, because he's not sure how ends are going to meet. So I, just, I have to rest in God. I, I, don't see how, uh, I don't see how the books are going to be balanced exactly. So this is good for the soul. And this has been something um, you know, that the Lord has been working on my own heart. When we come into straits, when we come into difficulties, when there are lean seasons, when there is tightness, there's great potential for spiritual advantage in those. And when we begin to think of them that way and use them in that way and have that result, spiritual advantage, we begin to do what James and Peter says, which is value them. We, the trial is good. It's good for me. It is good that I've been here. It's good that I learned something about God and that I learned something about uh, myself. But when we find that the means are taken away, when we find that the savings disappears and we become fretful and disquiet, you've got an idol. You are trusting in the means. The reality has now been opened to you. Some other common problems. It's a very easy thing for a wife to make an idol of her husband because he is the principal means that God uses to provide for her. I, I watched this once upon a time in a very close way. Christian lady, unbelieving husband, the husband's business has failed. It's gone into bankruptcy. A great heaviness of soul has set in on the husband. Uh, I think it's one of the first times that I really saw and knew what confusion of face meant. Like, I have no idea what to do. So here's this man, strong, industrious, conscientious, all of that. No idea what to do. Paralyzed. The wife, Christian, not trusting in the Lord, trusting in the husband, how do you detect it? She becomes shrill with him. We're sinking, we're sinking, we're sinking. You have to wake up. We're sinking, we're sinking, we're sinking. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You can say it louder. I still don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Until finally that woman realized, he's not my provision. 
He's the common means that God has used, true. And God's eventually, he did become the common means again. But in the meantime, uh, the Lord rather marvelously provided for her and for her children. Strangers just show up at the door with bags full of groceries and so on. But the Lord is our provision. But you see how subtle it can be. Because the husband is the normal way. But we've come to trust in the means. So the husband has become an idol. God is greatly glorified in our faith, our trust in him. But when we put that trust in something else, we rob him of that glory. A lost and dying world around us ought to see us resting in our God, whatever happens. Not becoming fretful and disquieted with the rest because their means are being taken away. They ought to, there's a, a story told about the Moravians on the boat, John Wesley seeing them. The boat's tossed and he's all upset. I mean, he's a Christian or at least at the time thought he was a Christian. Was he ever a Christian? I don't know. But he was amazed because he looked at these Moravians and they're happy. They're singing. Yeah, we might sink. <laughs> but God is still God and we're still his people. And we'll give him thanks and praise as long as we're in this world's realm. And he's greatly impressed by that, as anybody would be. But you see how God is greatly glorified in such things. Wow. These people think much of their God. They think much of their God. There are times when husbands make an idol of their wives. Uh, if she doesn't help me, I can't get anything done. That's not true. That's not true. She's a normal means to help you get things done. But your provision, your sufficiency, husband, is still in God. Something for you to think about. Pastor's keeping it real this morning. Very common for men to wrestle uh, with burning. Uh, your wife is the ordinary means that God has made for provision for that burning. That's good. All of that. Careful you don't make her an idol because ultimately, even in that area, God is your sufficiency. And he will keep you. And so even in that, you continue to look to God in faith to provide for you. And you never know uh, when, practically speaking, you are going to need that truth very much. Should your wife ever be laid up by long illness or incapacitated or some other thing, your sufficiency, Christian, is in God. And you learn to trust in God now against the day that you might find that you need it uh, very much. These are all just ways that we, we make idols of the creature. God recedes into the background and the creature becomes our all in all, our sufficiency, our dependence, and uh, so on. So what remedies? First of all, you need to be watchful for the discovery because if you are a child of God, you can be sure that God wants you to know what your idols are. So he will discover them to you. Sometimes it's... Um, Sometimes it's the gentle way, like uh, you're reading a passage of scripture, something comes up in a sermon, and it just comes ringing home to you. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I get an idol in my life. You need to be watchful and alert for these things. We all have our idols. 
And we ought to be watchful for the times that God is discovering them or disclosing them to us. You might also think of, um, uh, we've talked about providential discoveries. How did I react when certain things were taken away from me? And so on. So providence will frequently discover our idols to, to us. All I'm saying is the first thing in dealing with an idol is identifying it, which means we just need to be aware. We need to be watchful. We need to be uh, sensitive to God's dealing with us. But then upon the discovery, discovery is not enough. It's not enough for us to make, you know how we do. We make pious faces with one another and we say, yeah, I think too much of that thing. And then we just go right on with our idol. When the idol is discovered, we need to repent and let it go. Repent and let it go. It needs to come off of the throne. Now, the putting away of idols, some are easier to put away than others. Some of them, the easiest is when the thing is something you can put away altogether, like a statue. It's an indifferent thing. Then just put it away altogether. We're going to go bury our statue under the oak and look at it no more. Those are the easiest kind of kind of idols to, to deal with. Some idols you can't put away. But you're still going to have to get them off of the throne of the heart. You might think about money. You might wish that you could think about money no more. But guess what? You're still going to have to pay the bills this month. So you're going to have to deal with the money issue in the heart. If you make an idol of your spouse, you're still going to have to be with your spouse and love your spouse. And yet your spouse is going to have to come off the throne and God is going to have to go up on the throne. So how do we how do we deal with this? How do we put it away spiritually, even knowing that it's going to continue to be a big part of our everyday life? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It is only now that I begin to understand what the Apostle means by this. And this is one of those sayings where I'm sure in ten years I'm going to say, only now do I begin to understand what he meant. I thought I knew what he meant, but I didn't know. It's only now that I'm coming to understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none, and they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoiced not, and they that buy as though they possess not, and they that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. The Puritans talk about... Um, the use of the creature, the right use of it is um, there are just so many stepping stones to heaven. But you're created in the image of God. They belong beneath your feet, not an anchor around your neck or something resting on top of your head, weighing you down in your progress uh, to heaven. And all of these sorts of things, uh, our spouses, the things that make us weep, the things that make us rejoice, the things that we've bought. He says, every one of these things, we make a certain use of it, but not abusing it and not being weighed down uh, by it. I'll leave you to think about this passage because it's very, very uh, rich 
and in some ways expressed in a way that's very, very strange and thought-provoking. But we need to reform our mind. These things can't all be put away or set aside, so how do we bring them down spiritually? First of all, some things to think about. With respect to your affections, remember that under the very best of conditions, it's still just a creature. And of no comparison with the creator. And then remember that it's a fallen creature. In some ways, we're only properly fallen, but it is part of a fallen creation that uh, compared to its original beauty, glory, and goodness is just a pale shadow of its former self. What a ridiculous thing when we prefer these damaged creatures to the infinitely glorious, infinitely beautiful God. Also consider that every creature is inconstant. It's a foolish thing to trust in it as if it were some sort of a staff that would bear you up. You remember the words of the prophet uh, to Israel. He said, don't you lean on don't you lean on Egypt? It is an uncertain rod that's going to snap and pierce your hand. And that's what happens when you trust in any creature. They can't be depended upon ultimately. We are inconstant things. And if you lean upon it, ultimately it's going to break and it's going to pierce your hand and you're going to know the folly of having trusted in it. Cannot be relied upon. So even while you're considering the, uh, the, the fact that the creation is marred and inconstant, over against this, meditate much upon the beauty, the loveliness of the divine being. All other loves pale in comparison. Think upon the Lord Jesus Christ and think about what he's done for your soul and continue to think upon it until you're able to say in all sincerity, he is the chiefest among 10,000. There's not another thing that can compare with him. But this is something that we've got to be constantly rousing in our hearts or we're going to be like this sleepy woman in Song of Solomon chapter 5. We don't want to be roused from our bed by our beloved but if you think upon him if you think upon him stir up your love and your your affection upon him you'll know that he is the best beloved that there isn't anything that can uh, um, compare and then meditate upon his sufficiency and his faithfulness Jehovah is enough for you he is enough for all of the creation so he is certainly enough for you, little being that you are. And so the scriptures will tell us there is not a single man who's ever believed upon him, that's ever trusted in him, that's ever rested upon him, that's ever put his hope in him and has ever been disappointed. One day, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be in heaven. And it's going to be better, infinitely better than what you had ever imagined. It's going to be infinitely better than your greatest, grandest thought of it. And the thing that's going to make it so great is the glory of our Jesus. The beauty of his face, the love that is radiating from his countenance. You will not be disappointed. If you lived your whole life in a desert, starving, starving, 
suffering persecution every day of your life, when you go to that heavenly place, you're going to say, it's, it's, it's good for me. Everything that's happened to me, it's been great. It's been excellent. It's been well done. It's been just perfect. I wouldn't trade any of it for where I am now. And I am not disappointed. I'm not disappointed. This has so far exceeded my expectations. There's no need to trust in anything else. And you're a fool to trust in anything else. It's fully sufficient for us. So this is an ongoing work. Remember the admonition of Calvin this afternoon. Your heart's going to produce another idol. And you need to be alert for it. Be ready to deal with it. This is part of every step of our pilgrim's passage. This is part of the pilgrim's way. The heart is going to produce another one. And then I'm going to have to deal with it. I'm going to have to pull it down from the throne. But this is necessary. Just a couple of things. It's necessary for your own comforts. If you trust in the creature, it's going to disappoint you. That's the fact of the matter. But no one ever trusted in God and was ultimately disappointed. If you value your own comfort, you'll hear, you'll heed, and you'll apply. And second, it's necessary if we're going to glorify our God as we ought, because there is no greater way that we glorify him than our trust in him. When, uh, when this nation comes shaken apart, and without repentance it is going to come shaking apart, God's glory is going to be greatly displayed in those that really have put their trust in him. Everything has fallen down around them, and they say, the just shall live by faith. And we are still rejoicing in God, our Savior. So let all this stuff fall and shake and come to the ground. Our citizenship is in heaven, an eternal and immovable kingdom. The United States of America is falling down around our ears, and yet nothing has changed for us. When you can say that, and when you can believe that, you will be a bright and shining light in this world. This place is coming down, but not a single thing has changed for me. I trust my God. I trust my God. I thought that we might conclude with the singing of Psalm 121. You'll see the appropriateness, I think. I to the hills will lift mine eyes, from whence doth come mine aid. My safety cometh from the Lord, who heaven and earth hath made. No idol, the Creator. Thy foot he'll not let slide, nor will he slumber that thee keeps. Behold, he that keeps Israel, he slumbers not nor sleeps. Let us rise and sing in faith and adoration of our great God who keeps us indeed. Mm-hmm.